that, how does that strike you? What do you think when you see that portrait? It comes from 1471, I think, 15th century. So well, you can see it's quite old. You can see the, the dust on it. Yes, expressive. Saying something. The wounds, yes. It's a very... It, it was painted when the beginning of the Renaissance came and, and the paintings were going from stylized pictures to a natural realism. So the, the artist Bellini, who painted it, was wanting to just present Jesus as an ordinary man rather than the usual Christ with the halo and angels and whatnot around him. And I think he conjures that. I think that's exactly what you see, he's an ordinary man. But that particular picture has become associated, uh, nothing to do with Bellini, um, with a, a poet called Swinburne. Have any of you come across him? Swinburne was um, a poet, an able poet, who um, lamented the rise of Christianity because he felt Christianity had drained away the fun out of life. And in his poem, he talks about Jesus as the pale Galilean, um, in whose breath the world, under whose breath the world turned grey. I know. And he, it was a lament because he, in the poem, he's actually saying, I understand that Jesus, you, my view of the world is disappearing and Christianity is spreading, he said. But it was so much more lively and, and full-blooded full uh, before you came along. Now, I think that is the introduction to John because I think this, if you showed this to a teenager, not a teenager, a young adult today, they may say, somebody in their 20s who's just become a Christian, they may say, look at that and say, well, I don't get a lot from that. It's not going to get me up out of my seat or out of my bed, perhaps, in the morning to pray early. Um, and there is something that what John is trying to do, he's trying to say that there really is a qualitative quantum step change in the way we can live our lives with Christ and that this is um, beyond words and there are lots of ways he tries to have a go at expressing that and so if we take that as an example that portrait as an example of Jesus as a rather ordinary um, pious man let, let's see whether his gospel manages to, to bring a bit more to life than just that so the literary portrait painter uses these six tools. We've seen them each week. So um, the quiz is at the end. Today, we look at uh, the meaning of life. I'm suggesting there's one title. Here are some quotes of people. Um, Clement of Alexandria, AD 230. John, perceiving that the bodily facts had been made plain in the gospel, being urged by his friends, composed a spiritual gospel. Everybody seems to know now that uh, John's gospel has, as it were, more freedom to interpret Jesus than the synoptics, the other three. And you'll see that in very um, straightforward ways. For example, uh, Jesus um, cleanses the temple of the moneymakers right at the beginning of John's gospel, 
whereas it happens right at the end in others. John felt in order to convey what he wanted to give you about Jesus, he was free to move events around, group them here and there. Now we saw that a bit in Matthew. Matthew did the same. He did it with teaching. He collected sayings together. John was a bit more, um, and that's what he meant by it. a spiritual gospel is a gospel where the, the story of Jesus has been highlighted and reworked and represented so you can see into the inner meaning. St. Augustine, ah, this is my favorite. John's gospel is like a sea, shallow enough for lambs to paddle and deep enough for elephants to swim. Isn't that just wonderful? You've said it now, you can go home if you want. Um, Beasley Murray wrote a really good commentary. Um, he claims the attention of more scholars at the present time than uh, just about any other of the gospels. Um, Billy Graham, here's a great one. To a new Christian, starting to read the Bible, I say, start at the center, don't begin at Exogenesis. Please, start at the centre in one of the Gospels. And I, I often suggest John. Um, I heard another version of that where a new Christian said, what shall I read? And he said, read John's Gospel. Fine, they said. Then what shall I read? Then you read John's Gospel again. Yes, he said. And then what shall I read? You read John's Gospel again. I think when I was a new Christian, John's Gospel fed me. And I don't know, probably many of you, I don't know. It's just... Wonderful. And then uh, Rowan Williams, the gospel. This is, this is, you know, Rowan Williams is essentially a poet. I mean, he's a theologian as well, but he, he likes to say things elliptically. The gospel relates how, by a relationship with Jesus, we may come to see where he lives and then make our home there. Well, that's, that's a, a poetic reflection on the John 14, isn't it? Um, the many rooms. So, Let's look at the gospel. If we pick up a Bible, which I hope you will know, you'll see that the prologue, that's the first little bit, one, chapter 1, 1 to 18, that's commonly known as the prologue. That begins with, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. And actually, as we'll see a bit later on, this is another of those either hymns or poems that has been adapted by John. Um, because it fits what he wants to convey. So the actual narrative starts in 119 with John the Baptist. And it, then that goes all the way through to what looks like, if you turn over to John 20, 31. The per in this, in this um, translation, it's got a little heading, The Purpose of John's Gospel. Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by, leaving, by believing you may have life in his name. What a great way to round off the story of Jesus. And that seems to be in the, that's the first draft. And then some more material came along, and so that is what I put, that's called the... Um, the epilogue, if you like, chapter 21. So you've got, so this gospel ends twice. You've got two endings for the price of one. So what you've got then is this, the prologue at the beginning, the life, death, and resurrection, and then that's the first and the second ending, the epilogue. Now, if you look more closely, let's go back to the beginning. John chapter 1. Uh, John chapter 2. Do you remember the story of the wedding at Cana? 
There was no wine. They'd run out. Um, and Jesus' mother, Mary, says to Jesus, ch- chapter 2, verse 3, they have no more wine. And Jesus replies, woman, why, why involve me? My hour has not yet come. And that little, that little phrase, my hour has not yet come, recurs through this period of the life, death and resurrection. Until in John 13, it was just before the Passover festival and Jesus knew that the hour had come for him. So John divides neatly between the period before the hour, as as Jesus puts it, comes. That's this here. And then the period after, when Jesus, the hour, had come. And uh, people who write commentaries have suggested ways of labelling that. So the first period, under that period, my hour has not yet come. That's the whole period, chapter 1 up to the end of chapter 12. That's where we get a lot of the, the signs of Jesus and the I am sayings. So that's what we find there. And so that is known as the book of signs. Starts with John the Baptist, then the signs, then Jesus, Judaism, and then the, uh, the hour drawing near. And then you'll find those, well, there are several times the Passover takes place, so that, that's years of public ministry there. The seven signs. There are seven I am sayings and seven signs. Um, In John, a sign is a miracle with an extra meaning. So the miracle, for example, when um, Jesus feeds the 5,000, after that, John talks about how, presents Jesus saying, I am the bread of life, and he who eats of me will never die. And so his provision of what is a straightforward miracle, which is found in all the Gospels, has another layer of spiritual meaning about who Jesus is. So these seven signs are miracles that Jesus did, but they actually say something more about him than simply they, he helped somebody there. And it's very interesting that these are the only miracles in John's Gospel. There's a, there's a reference to healings here and there, but these are the only ones that are set out in detail. Water into wine, the healing of the sun, the healing by the pool, feeding of the 5,000, walking on the water, healing of the blind man, and then bringing Lazarus back to life. The Book of Signs. Then, the next part is actually what happens in and around Jerusalem over just about a week. And there what we find is that Jesus knew, this is 13.1, the hour had come to go to his Father. And he said, now is the Son of Man glorified. And you'll see that little um, s- s- um, s- uh, scheme set out in the inside of the uh, leaflets. So to take away and, 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 and play with it and see how it um, helps. So what I'd like to suggest is that in this first bit, that's the book of signs, we've actually got enough material there to put together a picture of how Jesus 
uh, is seen by John. This is the first of the portraits of, of Jesus. The second in the book of glory, again, we've got a, a different take on Jesus being presented to us as readers. And then finally, we'll look at the prologue uh, to see the third portrait of Jesus. So let's begin. This is the material that we've found. Broadly speaking, the first book of signs is a book which is a mixture of interaction and debate with the Jewish authorities and Jesus doing things which says, the new life I want to bring you is just amazing. And so that I've described as Jesus saying, this is the source of life. Jesus is the source of the new life. Whereas uh, in the book of glory, we've got Jesus being the servant, the foot washing, the promise of the coming of the Holy Spirit, then dying on the cross and then rising again. So let's look then at the portrait of Jesus, the first, the book of signs. We've said that a sign is a miracle with an extra level of meaning. And so also we get uh, Jesus using the I am sayings. Do you know, uh, I am the bread of life. Uh, and there's that lovely one when he had that discussion about with the woman at the, the well at Samaria. Do you remember what he said there about? She said, um, why do you, a Jew, ask me a Samaritan? To, to, and, and Jesus said, if you knew who I was, you would be asking me for living water. And she said, do you remember? And, it, and you see, this woman is just thinking quite literally. She says, oh, living water. Oh, yes, how, how do I get that then? And she plays, she's quite literal. And Jesus talks about um, how this living water springs up inside somebody and overflows that spring of living water. And the picture is of lovely, bubbling, fresh water, as it were, filling and overflowing and in, a heart, in a dry and warm, dusty place. That would be even more, perhaps, powerful than for us today. So those sort of sayings... I'm the bread of life. I'm the light of the world. If you were in darkness, I am your light. In fact, if you add the spring of living water and the bread of life, you've got all you need, haven't you, really? And Jesus says, I am the person who can give that. In this, the book of signs, John 3.16 is found. And that says, as you, I won't ask you because I'm sure you know it, that, um, that all that believe in his name should have eternal life. That's the, I think, the way the NIV uh, translates it. Well, now, what does eternal life mean? If you look at the original Greek, the word behind eternal is uh, ionion, which is actually, it means literally the, the life of the age to come. So eternal life, which we've um, that's how it's translated today, because it's a quality of life, is actually the, the life of the age to come. What Jesus does, he introduces the, the quality of life that's in the future and pulls it forward into our time. And we begin to experience the kind of life which we will know fully when we die and we're, and we're with the Lord. So eternal life, the life of the age to come, is a qualitative change. And that's what Jesus is talking about. All these metaphors, I am the bread, I will bring you bread you won't need anymore, water, the gate of the sheepfold, and then there's a lovely one about the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down, lays down his life for his sheep. So these collections are all about, if you like, the life that Jesus wants to give to those who follow him. 
I've suggested that this is how the portrait could be summed up. Jesus, first of all, Jesus is the one who comes from above and speaks what he hears from his father. Second, he's God's son. He pleases his father by doing what the father wills. He gives eternal life to those who believe in him, life of the age to come. And this life of the age to come is lived now unto the full. It's in John 10.10, again in the section, I have come that you may have life, and life in all its fullness. Um, The life of the age is like water turned into wine, family, and so on. And then there's there's also this undercurrent. Jesus confuses the blind Jewish leaders who plan to kill him to avoid political problems. So here we've got the first portrait of Jesus. What's the first sign in it? Which is the first of these signs? Do you remember? Yes, it is. The first sign is at a wedding. And I was genuinely puzzled. Why do you... Here we are, we're introducing the saviour of the world, and what's the first thing you find him doing? He's at a party, at a wedding. And I thought to myself, is that serious enough? Do you know? Really? But I think it's there for a very good reason. What, what might it be, do you think? To reach everybody, yes. Yeah. Yeah. It's accessible. Anybody can sort of get the hang of it. Yeah. Sorry? That's a new one. Um, the church is Christ, but I don't know that's immediately on the surface, but okay, I can I think about that? <laughs> that's it. I think it's actually what Jesus is saying, all these metaphors I'm going to use now about this new life, this life of the age to come. <clears throat> if you wanted to capture it in one moment, it's the difference between water and wine. That's what I'm doing. If you think about it, remember the story, Jesus um, goes to the wedding, they, they run out. In fact, if you look there, If we just look at it, John chapter 2. Mary says to the servants, 2 chapter 2 verse 5, Do whatever he tells you. And nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 80 to 120 litres. Okay, say quarters of 100 on average. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. So they filled them to the brim. Then he told them, draw some, take it to the master of the the banquet. They did so and the master said, wow, this is, you've you've kept the best to last. How much wine did Jesus give? That's not a trick question. You just need to do a bit of maths, really. 600 litres of best quality wine. I mean, that's just, that's overkill, isn't it? It might, it might have been quite some party, that's true. <laughs> that is just huge, 600 litres. And this, isn't this something about the, the superabundance of what the Lord wants to give? And it may be you've grown up and been socialised in Christians who are really serious. Maybe you've been a wee free. I should have to be careful, really, because I'm no wee free. Um, some 
traditions are just much more serious. They think the way we honour God is by being serious about our faith. And I think we do need to know when to be serious. But actually, I, I, I was amazed as, a, as a, new, a new Christian when I, I met some Jews who became Christians. And I found that the Jewish people, first of all, had a sort of a zest about life, which I didn't quite know where they got it from. And when they're Christians as well, I mean, they were just sort of all over the place, really, you know, with happiness and joy. And I went um, to, then I went to visit a friend up at a, a, f- a fellowship that meant, that met Hollybrook, I think, Holly something, that met in a barn on a farm up in Yorkshire. And I have to say, for me, this was a little, uh, coming from Church of England stock, uh, was a bit of an eye-opener, because we went, we sat there, and it was all, it was all, all right to begin. Um, and so they were welcomed, and we had scripture reading, we praised, and then they said, we're going to sing to the Lord, right. So a man got up with a trumpet, a bit like Glynn, but he then proceeded to play the trumpet to the Lord. And it was, he was great, he was a very good player. And as he played, he hopped around the room. And then he invited us all to hop around the room as a way of saying to the Lord, we're here, Lord, and we want to worship you. Now, I was still trying to work out whether I could hop on, on the beat or not. And, and what I discovered was, my experience of the joy of being a Christian, of, of the tasting of this new life, had been socialized by going to a rather quiet, conservative, evangelical church. And they were lovely people. They were dutiful and loving and prayerful. But the joy of the Lord seems to have been sort of kept for special occasions. <laughs> John is saying the difference Jesus makes is the difference between water and wine. Now, which would you like? No, I don't want your health answer. I said, which would you like? <laughs> There's this lovely picture. of, And then if you go back and read these metaphors in the light of the best wine and 600 litres of it. Well, I think it's a bit daring to do that. But it's what, what we've offered. So the first portrait of Jesus is that Jesus is the one who brings life that really makes a difference. And actually... Um, I, for me, I find that is a helpful challenge. Have I settled? Have I um, accepted what others think is normal? Um, I don't know how I'd express... Well, I don't want to go into personal details too much. Uh, but how do you express joy when you're really joyful? Do you really sit there just looking like this? I mean, some of our services, really. I mean, if, if people came in, they think, oh... Right, I think I'm going down the pub. There's more life down there. There's something here about the scale of joyfulness and newness that Jesus wants to bring, that John wants to convey. And I'm not at all surprised that uh, Billy Graham says, read John, because you'll get a little glimpse of it. So that's the first portrait, I think, which I think is, um, is just lovely. And if, you're, if you are weary... Uh, and it, it's all, if you're a church warden, it's all got, just got a bit of hard work. Or you might be a church warden and you think it will be hard work. Whatever it is, find time just to come back to John and say, Lord, show me afresh the life in the Spirit which you wish us to enter into. And may we as a community, may I as an individual, set out. Um, you know, I can't understand this. When... We have invitations to pray. You know that we say there's prayer ministry after, prayer ministry after the thing. Well, I'm very glad there's prayer ministry. So are you. I mean, it's a good thing. But actually, I'd have thought myself, speaking personally, 
that most of us would like to know more of the Lord. And so there would be a queue around the block. In fact, I, I want to know why you don't go for prayer rather than why you do. Do you see, there's more. That's what he's wanted to say. And in a kind of way, that freedom in Christ was trying to say the same thing. I don't mean trying, I mean, he's saying the same thing. He's endeavouring the same thing. We're all ordinary people whom God would like to transform. And that's the life of the age to come. It's like getting ready for heaven. When I was a really, really new Christian, I grew up in, uh, I became a Christian as a student, and they didn't, um, they said, you know, you have to be very careful about the sensual side of your body. And therefore, dancing is very suspect. Do, do any of you remember that? It's probably after your time, or before your time. <laughs> so I went home as a new Christian, and I said to my mum, we went to a wedding uh, 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 down in London. My father comes from an extended London family, uh, and uh, they had a wedding, and, and there was a great dance at the end of the, the food, and everybody danced except for me. I sat in, on the side. My mother came up and whispered my ear, get out there, and I was saying, mum is a Christian, I think I can't. <laughs> and I now think, oh, dear. The intention was, well, I wanted to put the Lord first. And I, don't, I think that was absolutely right. But sometimes the way we put the Lord first may not be the way he wishes us to put him first. And John is saying, look, there's light. There's a shepherd. There's resurrection life. Do you know the resurrection is the unit of power in the New Testament? You know you have these um, torches which give you three bars or two bars as they go down. Well, that little bar is a, is a unit of resurrection if you're a Christian. How much resurrection power have you, do you see in your own life? If it's just down to one bar, well, think about it. Okay, so that's the first portrait of Jesus. Jesus, the life giver. Well, now the second is more serious, as you could imagine. We move then to the book of glory. And I suggest that these are the things which would come into focus in the book of glory. And it is just following through the story as it goes. The first thing is that Jesus talks about he's now going to die on his way to the Father. And he says, and this is when I will be glorified. Now remember glory in the Old Testament meant the presence of God, yes? You could see that God was there. And when God left the temple, remember? of the glory of the Lord left the temple. So the sense of the presence of God in a place, the glory. And Jesus is saying, you will sense the presence of God when I die and rise again and go back to the Father. This is revealing who I truly am. Or, more precisely, what God is truly like. His, his glory began to be revealed when he washed the feet of the disciples. I don't know whether you've ever spotted this, but in John 13, where the Last Supper is described, what is missing? <laughs> I said, in John's description of the Last Supper, at John 13, what is missing? Say again. Yeah, the Last Supper. Pardon? The Last Supper is missing from the Last Supper. Yes. Look. 
John chapter 13. And what do we have instead? Jesus washing the disciples' feet. 13, verses 1, all the way down to um, verse 17. In John, what Jesus did then was even more striking, as John saw things, uh, than the Last Supper, which was just a Passover meal with some extra meaning added. This was much more revolutionary than a, than a Last Supper or Passover meal. This was the Son of God kneeling at the feet of his disciples and washing their feet. This is completely unexpected. And it is exact opposite of what you imagine to be what God is really like. We think of God as high and up, lifted up there, don't we? And Jesus is the mediator who helps us get closer to the high and mighty God. And now Jesus is washing the disciples' feet. This is the glory beginning to be shown. This is what God is really like. He kneels to serve the people he's created out of love for them. Jesus explains that he's the way, the truth, and life. He promises the advocate. Then he rises again after the resurrection, and Thomas says, my Lord and my God. And in the, uh, the extra bit, the, that um, epilogue, we actually see Gia Peter is reinstated. So that is the story. But what has been revealed there is something that's so counterintuitive that it's been... Um, foregrounded and what other people already know about the, um, the Last Supper is left in the background. This is, I think, in terms of uh, meditation and reflection personally, just to meditate on this and imagine, uh, as some of you might have done, to imagine that you're one of the disciples there and Jesus comes around washing your feet. What would you feel like? What would you sense as you allow the, that meditation led by the Spirit and the Scriptures to become real for you? I can imagine myself being quite like Peter, really. Lord, really? No, absolutely not. And Peter was very good at telling Jesus what to do, wasn't he? Not this, not that, but you better do that. Maybe. And Jesus says, unless I do it, it's not going to work. So here we have got, in the book of glory, a picture of what God is like in Jesus, and it is that it's not what we expect. He's, he dies. Logically, we don't still know how to express how can God die. But he did on the cross. He returned to his Father. He said to his disciples, when they said, well, come with you, he said, no, nobody can go this journey with me. but he is the way and the truth and the life. So that's the second portrait of Jesus. Quite um, striking, really, and unexpected. So those are the first two portraits. Sorry, I meant... Uh, any comments just now before we move on to the third portrait? Do you know this floor gets... Um, squeakier. Perhaps I'm supposed to stand still. That's jo a joyful standing still. 
Any any comments? Is that is that okay? Uh, well, and, and the weirdness is actually a stimulus to say, John knew what he was doing. This is not a mistake. And if you want to know where John talks about the communion, he does it in John 6. After the feeding of 5,000, he talks about how Jesus is the bread of life and he who eats my bread will live forever. So he does, it's, it's not missing from the gospel, but it's not here. So that there's, a, there's a plan. And our, that's like being a detective, isn't it? You try and work out what's going on in the mind when they move the material around and decided to emphasize this and not so much that. So the beginning of John, the bulk of it, is about Jesus, the bestower of a new quality of life. And then we begin to see how that happens in the book of glory. And then now we're just left with a prologue. Now the prologue, 18 verses, that's all really. So let's turn to that now and see what that says about who Jesus is, how John in his gospel wants us to understand him. So the prologue begins, if you turn to chapter 1, verse 1 to 18, there. The opening words, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. In the beginning, what does that resonate? What does that immediately suggest? Creation, Genesis. So there's a kind of a resonance. Um, it's a little clue. See how this compares with Genesis. And then it goes on all the way through. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that was made. And in him was life. And that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness does not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John, and he came as a witness to testify concerning that light so that through him all might believe. He himself was not the light. He came only as a witness to the light. The true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to those his own, and his own did not receive him. Yet to all who did receive and to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision, or a husband's will, but born of God. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. And John testified concerning him. He cried out, um, this is the one I spoke about when I said, he who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me. Out of his fullness, we have all received grace in place of grace already given. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. And no one has ever seen God but the one and only Son who himself is God and is in the closest relationship with the Father has made him known. Magnificent, don't you think? That's why uh, in the Church of England lectionary, that is used on most Christmas mornings for um, when we're thinking about how Jesus came. The Logos came and was born. The Logos became flesh. 
Well, now let's look more closely. As I suggested, this is a hymn or a poem. And if you look, we'll start with um, verses uh, 15. Look at verse 15. Do you notice the brackets there? Yeah? The brackets, because at that stage, um, the poem, as it were, breaks off and we look at John for a bit. And if you look up further up, verses 6 and 7, that's the same. There's John for a bit. So if you were to look um, at it uh, schematically, if you look on the screen, you perhaps can see it easier. Um, what you've got is you've got a bit there, which is about John, verses 6 and 7. And then you've got a bit there that's about John, verse 15. And it looks to, I think most would say, looking at it, that those have been slipped in because... They want to lead into John the Baptist. And if you take those out, you then get the hymn as it was originally, when it was actually just about Jesus, the Logos, and it didn't do John the Baptist. So just for fun for today, let's park John the Baptist, because we're looking at portraits of Jesus. We wouldn't if we, want, if we were looking at John the Baptist, but we're looking at Jesus. So here we go. There it is now with them removed. So can you see how verse 5 then jumps to verse 9? And verse uh, 14 jumps to verse 16. Yeah? This is the hymn that is the basis of the prologue. And this is the hymn that John wanted to put right at the beginning of his gospel. So clearly he thought it was really important. Well, let's look more carefully. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. How many times is the word, word, <laughs> used? There they are, underlined. Just four. Three of the first verse, and then one down there in verse 14. In that first section, in the beginning was the word, the word was with God. The word is the subject of all the action, or everything that happens is the word is doing all of the things that happen between 1 and verse 13. And similarly, the word picks up again in verse 14. So what we've got here, that the, the word in the Greek logos, as you probably know, is only mentioned four times in the Gospel prologue. And now, the interesting thing, it's never, ever used in the Gospel anywhere else. That, as they say colloquially, is your lot, mate. Just four references in those 18 verses and it never appears again. So what, what is happening? The word is not named until you get right the way back down here to verse 17. The law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. What do you think? Who's who has John got in mind? What, what's he doing at this stage? He's introduced a, a key concept and then it's disappeared. Why might that be? If you're like me, those are the kind of questions I say, because uh, I have a conversation with the text when I read it. Do you? I read a bit and I say, that, why, Paul, did you put it like that? And in fact, I have a list of questions I'm going to ask Paul. I'll probably have to join the queue uh, in heaven because, and, and so on. Because sometimes you think, hmm, really? 
because the text is only a way to meet the person who wrote the text. And these are real people wrestling with their Christian faith. Okay, any suggestions? David. Yes, I think that's true. Um, but the, what the Logos is about is actually follows on, and it's all it is, stories about Jesus. So the stories about Jesus explain who the Logos is. Yes. So why not just refer to the Logos as we go along? Just to remind the reader, you know, this is why we're doing it. So the, okay, so the, so the Logos, when he becomes human, becomes Jesus. And then uh, Jesus is the subject of the rest of the action. Okay, that's, that's one possibility. I, I think, um, let's leave it there. Yeah, okay. Well, I'd like to suggest that John doesn't use the word Logos anymore because he thinks that Jesus is both the Logos and more than the Logos. And so he uses Logos there for people who are really interested in Logos. And who are they? They're not in the Bible. They're not in the New Testament. They are the readers of the Gospel, or those who heard it. In other words, that is written for the people of his day. Because a lot of people went right, you may not realize this, saying, How's your, what do you think about this Logos idea? I think it's a really good idea. Do you? Yes, it's got some good stuff there. What is it? Well, it explains how things hang together, and so on. The Logos is here, is not for our benefit as Christians who want to know more about Jesus, because John is quite convinced that Jesus offers us much more of an insight about what the Logos is like than just the idea of Logos. The Logos is there for those who are not yet Christians. This is John's missionary hook. He wants to get people thinking about Jesus who at the moment just think about the Logos. Now you say, were there many? And I think the answer is, well, who believed there was in the Logos in those days? Actually, quite a lot. Philosophers and theologians. There are two groups of people who believed in the Logos. And the, here's the first. These are the Greek philosophers. Heraclitus, he looked at the world and saw it was all in flux, and yet he thought it didn't collapse and it didn't degenerate into chaos. There's some order inside the flux. And that's what he thought the Logos was. The Logos was the, the mind of, in creation which kept things from descending into chaos. It's the reason of God. The Stoics, same again, they looked at the world and they said, although there are lots of happenstance, there still does seem to be an order, a reason, a, a, an order, a, sen, a semblance of movement, a direction, things hang together. And Philo, who was a, a Jewish philosopher, he thought the Logos was a way of talking about the thought of God. So the Jewish, sorry, the philosophers had worked out that when you look at the world, it is not just random. It is not always tilting, about to fall into chaos. 
the world has an order to it, a, a rhythm to it. And actually, they were, in a funny kind of way, they were the precursors of the scientists who did it in the 18th century, in the 19th century. They looked at our material world and they said, it does hang together, there are rules, so-called. There are patterns, anyway, in the way things move and happen. The trouble with Greek philosophy, well, one of the troubles, uh, is that it all, it's all in the mind. And the minute, in 1.14, John says, the logos, sarks agenitop, which is the Greek, the word became flesh. Well, a Greek philosopher would have had a fit. Absolutely not. The whole business about the mind, as a Greek philosopher would put it, is to get away from the flesh. The flesh is where the trouble lies. We need to discipline the flesh, um, distance ourselves from it, and keep it in check so we can concentrate on thinking pure thoughts. And so philosophy is all about ideas and playing with ideas and how they hang together. And so in those days, they did think there's, there's an order about the world. We've seen it, we understand it, we feel toward it. We're not quite sure how it hangs together, but it is there. This um, rationality, uh, no, uh, sorry, this, um, the reasonableness of the patterns that repeat. And I think today we would say exactly that. We would say, wouldn't we, that the world has got a rhythm to it. It has got an order about it. And, and I suggest, just to give it a little clue, if you look back, to, if you've probably got still open before you, look at verse uh, 9 of chapter 1, verse, one uh, verse 9. Jesus, the true light that gives light to everyone, was coming to the world. He was in the world, Though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. This world bears evidence of a creator God. But the trouble is that you need the eyes to spot it. Otherwise, it can be just interpreted as a, a pattern with no meaning or purpose or bigger uh, uh, overall worldview. So what this poem says is that Jesus helped bring into crea in the, the creation into existence and left his fingerprints on it. And, and philosophers who reflected on that have seen, in a vague way, these fingerprints. And one of the fingerprints is that there is an order to things. One thing leads to another, and it repeats. If you do the same, it does the same. So they were interested in finding out more about the Logos. And so when John says, listen, lads, I've got some more news about that Logos we've been talking about. They say, oh, go on, tell us. And they say, oh, you wouldn't believe it, really? And off they go. And until they got to the bit, and then the Logos became a human being, then they go, you knew must be joking, lads. And so they, then the debate continued. And then second, the other world was the world of, of, the, the, of Judaism, the Jewish things of the day. And there, it's easy, you, you probably recognize many of these. In the Old Testament scriptures, the word, the logos, um, is the word that is issued and has the power to make things happen. Yeah? So, do you remember Jacob and Esau cheating? Sorry, Jacob cheated, didn't he? To get the blessing. Do you remember in the Old Testament? He, he put on was it, bits of lambs or something or other. So he was hairy. He wasn't hairy, but he became hairy briefly, um, as it were. And 
he was blessed by his father in error. And then when his father realized, he couldn't get the blessing back. Because the blessing, that's the blessing, the word of blessing had gone forth. And not only was it a word which was said, it was a word which had power to do things. He was blessed. And there's this sense of the word. So when God, in Genesis 1 it says, and God said, let there be light, there was light. The word is an effective, powerful instrument. And the word in Greek is logos. So even in, in the Old Testament side, you can begin to see that this, the Logos was, in, was in, um, already there. By the time of Jesus' day, most um, Jews couldn't read Hebrew anymore, and so they translated bits of the Old Testament into Aramaic, which was the language they did speak. And there, they'd also, over the years, learned to respect God a bit more. They often replaced the word God, Yahweh, in, in Hebrew, with the word of God, the memra, that it is in, in Aramaic, um, the word of God replaced God. So they had begun to see that the word of God expressed the mind of God and did what God wanted. Wisdom literature was linked to the Logos, and then eventually the word and wisdom became the same. So what we've got, we've got a world where people who are thinking people, you know, people who read um, The Guardian, perhaps, um, were... Or the Times Literary Supplement, better. Yes? No, not better, all right. Um, thinking people were saying, how do you make sense of the world we're in? And they, and they would read and debate with different philosophers in their own um, groups. And what John is saying is, I would like to tell you that your fumblings around in trying to explain how the world hangs together are on the right path. And they're on the right path because... The world and us, we're all made by Christ. And Christ is the Logos. And so we're, we're actually looking, we who are Christ-like in outline, are looking for Christ's fingerprints in Christ's created order. So it, it's natural it would hang together. And certainly some theologians distinguish between what they call natural revelation and special revelation. Natural revelation is what you can learn about God just looking at the world. And special revelation is what God sends to us when the Jesus comes and the Holy Spirit comes. Well now, what does that mean? Two things which I think are amazing, and, and I just offer you these, yeah, which is just perfect timing, which to me are, are, are really brilliant, and I hope you'll say the same. There's your cue. The first is, John is addressing readers who already believe in the Logos, and John says, Jesus is the real Logos. Jesus is the one who makes sense, not just of your personal faith, but how the universe hangs together. That is a much bigger vision of Jesus than you get in the other Gospels. The other Gospels go nowhere near this. The only other person who gets near it is Paul, where Paul talks about how um, Jesus holds created order and, and so on. Jesus, the portrait we're given here, is of Jesus who is a much bigger sway than just the Jewish Messiah, or the Saviour of the Gentiles. You want to know what the world's about? Look at Jesus. And the second thing that flows from that, which I think is even better, or equally good, is this. Jesus can be the Saviour of all people because he has already lightened them and they don't recognise it yet. 
Do you remember that phrase that we just read? How Jesus, the light came into the world and enlightened everybody, but they don't recognize it. There is potential for every person to respond to Christ because they are human, made, what we say in another way, in the image of God. So it's not a, this business about mission being. I remember hearing somebody said, uh, we're talking about, we lived in Bradford for a while and we had a 20%, 25% of the city was, um, was uh, made up of, of, of Muslim families. And, and somebody said, well, we don't really need to try. And, they've got a faith. Let's try and concentrate on those who've got no faith at all. And when you unpack that, it was because people were uncertain about whether it isn't it a bit presumptuous to say to somebody who's got a living faith, uh, actually, there's an even better one in Jesus. And particularly when some of the people who had this, I mean, I know some Muslims who are, who are outstanding people in terms of character. And I know some Christians who are real vagabonds and bring the Lord into disrepute. I mean, all of this child abuse in the church is just appalling. And it's worse, the fact that we somehow thought, that the way, or we, corporate, uh, that if we cover it up, it'll somehow go away. I mean, how, when you say it like that, it's just so obviously nonsensical. And so when we think about uh, other people who have upstanding moral people, we feel almost as if it's, who are we to say, that they need what Christ offers. Surely, look at them. Streets ahead of us. And I would say, the reason they need what Christ offers is because they're human. Not because they're Muslims, or Christians, or Jews, or Greeks, or Gentiles, or anything. They are human, made in the image of God. And what John is saying, the, all of us are made like this by Jesus, but we don't recognize it. And the gospel is that Jesus will open up what we are blind. That's the great story about you know, the blind man who, is, who Jesus helped see. Do you remember that one in John's Gospel? It is, it is pure comedy. Do you remember that? It starts by this man being healed. And he, go home and he goes back saying, I've been healed. And of course, that gets into trouble. So, he gets, so somebody says, well, who healed you? He said, I don't know. He says, How did they do it? Well, he just did it. They rubbed some stuff and here I am. And so the, 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 um, the uh, leaders said, and I'm not sure about this, I don't, people just go around healing like that. Uh, call his parents in. So call his parents in. So is this your child? Yes. Was he blind once? Yes. Can he see now? Uh, it seems so. The parents were a bit cautious because they didn't want to get in trouble. Well, who did it? You better ask him, they said. <laughs> so he said, uh, so well, who did this? He said, I don't know. He said, I, I once was blind and I can see. And then they said, the Pharisees said, we're not getting anywhere with this. Um, <laughs> so, and, and then the man turned around and being, he asked a second set of questions. And he said at the end, listen, I've told you all I know. I, could, I don't know. Do you want to believe yourself? Is that what you really want? And they go, <laughs> and it says, and they threw him out. <laughs> the learned people. Great. They were blind and Jesus helped them see. That's one way of understanding what the gospel does. It opened, we're, we're blind and then Jesus opens our eyes and we see his love. We see his fingerprints in creation. We see he's here with us. He wants to be, give us a life, as I said, that first portrait. Life enhancing, life um, on another plane. So that is the great dream that Jesus is the saviour of the world because the world is already his. 
Sometimes we think Jesus is here and he's sending out mission teams to rescue people from a world. No, no. This world is God's back garden. We're already just playing in what is where he enjoys doing what he does. And everybody can be brought to understand who created them. And the one who can actually dispel the darkness is Jesus. The one who can take away. Those fumblings are in the right direction because they're created beings. So when um, I was in, uh, working in uh, Uganda for a time as a mission partner, um, we had to build some dormitories, and, and we found a, we had an American on <laughs> we had an American on the staff, um, Peter Laram, and uh, he, I thought as an English person he was very loud and noisy, as most Americans are in my experience, and he thought uh, I as an Englishman was far too cautious and quiet as most English people are in his experience. And we were both on the staff, and we used to have these rows, you see. So eventually, anyway, we, we, um, we were going to... That's right. He wanted a video. We had this money given to expand the college and build up a degree program in theology. So you'll see immediately how this doesn't relate. Um, he said, but we need a video unit so we can make videos and send them home so people who are giving money can see what's happening. And I said, no, we don't want a video. We want a water tank. We haven't got rain when in, the, in, the, in the dry season. We haven't got water. No rubbish, it's far too prosaic. We're wondering. So anyway, we, he and I, we met before the meeting, and I said, Peter, let's have a truce. I'll back your video unit if you back the water tank. Done. So we were the two noisy people on the staff. Everybody else said, oh, all right then. So, so we went in, and, and, and we did both. We built the water tank, and, and I got the job of doing the video unit, would you believe? So I came back on leave. I went round, tried I bought out this camera. didn't think it was good enough. Took it back. Doing the one. And, and that started, I used to, and I did, I... For a while, I made videos, um, and still, I've still got the kit, because it was a way of communicating. Well, Peter had met somebody on the plane, as he does, and as he said, you know, we're building this. Why don't you come and give us a quote? So this guy turns up, and he's a really lovely Muslim man. So I thought, okay. So he went round, and he gave us a quote for building these dormitories. And he said to me, David, he said, you would like me to become a Christian, wouldn't you? Now, what would you have said? And I said, yes, absolutely right. And I said, and you would like me to become a Muslim, wouldn't you? And he said, yes, I would. And he said, actually, I've got here a DVD. <laughs> it was a Muslim alpha. So I thought, he said, would you like to watch that? I said, okay, I'll watch that deal. I'm happy to do that. I hadn't got, a, I hadn't got a, an audiovisual thing to give him back. It was a shame. But anyway, um, so I agreed to go and watch it. And we shook hands. He said, right, let's go and have tea. So we sat down, respecting each other, knowing where we were coming from. And then I came back from there. And I don't know if he ever came, became a Christian. I don't think he didn't in my time. But we, we had built a relationship where we could talk to people. And we could say, honestly, this is what it's like. And then I came back to Birmingham and I discovered there was a council of faiths here. So somebody said, oh, you've worked with other faiths. Let me go along. So I went along as the bishop asked me to go. And they said, you know, we have a lovely time. We've got everything you could possibly think of. Every religion in the sun. I said, oh, that's great. They said, we all love each other. I said, that's lovely. And I said, um, how do you get on with the hard questions like um, people changing from one faith community to another? Oh, we don't talk about that. We don't want to upset people. And I said, well, you haven't begun then, have you? Because that's, how you have, that's where you have to be, as it were, able to talk to somebody of another faith. So we're not judging, we're all creatures. And John is saying that. That prologue, is to, is to go, he's fishing with that prologue. And in his day, 
people read it and thought, I'm up for this. This has met me where I am and has taken me on a bit. And, and it's this Jesus, and I want to know more about him. Okay, any comments on that? That is a slightly more, I should have said at the beginning, this is the one way your mind may need to just, you can rest again now. I see some of you started resting already. Um, you just need to follow the logic through, but it, it's there in that lovely hymn at the beginning. Once I was blind and now I can see. Brilliant. And that's, I think, why... There's a lot of, if you read through John's Gospel, a lot of John's Gospel is about seeing. Signs are things you see. People see when they mean they understand. So it is Jesus is opening the eyes of the blind again and again and again. And then you see this is the, the God who loves you and is calling you uh, to accept this gift of eternal life. Any comments? Is that right? Great. Peter. Yeah, Pete, sorry. Oh, so. I'm expecting you, there'll be more than two words, so I'm going to bring a mic. <laughs> okay. Can you do the two words then through the mic? <laughs> uh, just the thought that, you know, that uh, this is so powerful, this uh, start of John's Gospel. It's, it, to me, it's much, much deeper than the other three, which really just talk about the birth of Jesus. And I think too much, perhaps we put too much emphasis on that. You know, at Christmas, we, we just think of that. Whereas the powerful message here mm. is, is much, much. that it, the, the birth of Jesus was only when he came to this world. He'd been there right from the very beginning. Mm. And do we emphasise that enough? Yep. Thank you. Which goes back to um, Jesus... There is a debate, and we don't know the answer to this, but the debate runs like this. Was Jesus known as Jesus before he was Jesus? All right, maybe. I'm, I'm trying to confuse you with that deliberately. Uh, what was Jesus' name in that period when he was with God, but before he came to earth? Was he Jesus then? We don't know. That's the honest answer. I think he was. And that's why the angel said, you've got to call him Jesus. He'll recognize your name. <laughs> Savior. Yeah. Yeah. But, the, okay. But it is it's that idea. Jesus was there before the worlds began and was doing things, calling us into creation. Lovely. Well, thank you. And the other comment, while well, I've got the mic. <laughs> Just the other one. Didn't um, Stephen Hawking get quite close to this? In his, uh, that it, he, he saw the order in, uh, yes. in the world. And uh, he may not have been a Christian, but I think he got very close to, to saying, basically, that a lot of what we've been saying mm. tonight. I don't know. I, I, my impression is that. I don't know his writings well enough. But certainly, anybody who's begun to see patterns and... Even Einstein said uh, there is a God of some kind behind this. Um, and the lovely thing is that we don't have to judge whether that is enough to be a Christian or not. God judges on how much they've made of, the, of, of what they've received. And that's between God and them. But, the, but scientists, are, they, are, they do see these things, which suggest some kind of logos-shaped... Yeah. I can pass it on now. <laughs> right. Well, now, okay, there'll be a little time at the end. Um, we've had the discussion now. But, um, 
Would you like then to just uh, form yourself into a little group? There's one question for each of those. The first portrait, the life giver. The second portrait, the, the suffering God. And the third portrait, the mission of God. And if you'd like to just choose one in your group and we'll, we'll gather together in about 15 minutes. Thank you.